Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Kiani Mills, who's the CEO of KLM Conveyancing. We kick off with exactly what a conveyancer does and go through the whole process of purchasing a property from the exchange of contracts to understanding the cooling off period and what happens with settlement as well. She also gives some great advice for people that are looking to purchase a property and some of the key things that can go wrong as part of the process. I think it's crucial listening for anyone wanting to purchase a property in the future and Kiani is really generous with her advice. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Here's Kiani. Kiani Mills, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure on this end as well. Kick us off with who you are and what you specialize in. Sure. So my name is Kiani Mills and I am the CEO of a company called KLM Conveyancing. We specialize in residential conveyancing, which is anything to do with buying, selling or transferring any ownership in real property. Beautiful. And uh, that probably answers one of the questions I've got in in what is a bloody conveyancer. (laughs) But we'll we'll dive into that. But I want to know what posters were on your bedroom wall growing up. Oh, Backstreet Boys. (laughs) Like every young girl. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Thankfully, we don't have that in common, but my sister did. Oh, yes. See, it's it's a young girl thing. <laughs> now, um, just we made reference a second ago. Um, that was based on me sort of chatting to you the other day and hearing that there's a lot of people that have no idea what a conveyancer actually is and a lot of people think you even use a tripod, yeah. <laughs> which was um, a surprise. For anyone that's in the dark, can you give us a bit more of a of a background to what a conveyancer actually does? Yeah, sure. So we are an offset of the legal profession. We are not lawyers at all, um, but we are licensed conveyances. So we do our degree based on um, our expertise in property transfers. So lawyers get trained and specialise in all different areas. We are only property. So if the, the easiest way to explain it is if you were going to buy a house on the weekend, you would be given a contract of sale. That contract of sale is prepared by a conveyancer. It's looked over by a conveyancer. And then we kind of work with our clients, whether it is the buyer or the seller, all the way through the whole process for that property to be transferred into the ownership of the purchaser. Well, that sounds pretty simple. Yeah. so I'm sure there's a bit to it. There's a little bit to it, but um, most people do think that we are surveyors, as you said, standing out in blocks of lands with tripods, but uh, I assure you that is not the case. Uh, we do the, kind of the legal nitty-gritty stuff behind the background um, to facilitate a transfer of ownership. I get a lot of that tripod um, stuff myself, but at least my profession has the word surveyor in it, but conveyance, I don't know, maybe the syllables match or something. Oh, who knows? Now, I'm I'm quite happy to admit that um, being a quantity surveyor, that's not a very cool profession and and you've probably got me on that one. But even still, I can't imagine that kindergarten kids are saying that they want to be conveyances when they grow up. so I'm I'm quite interested in, in, in what led you to where you are today. Yeah, look, I don't think there are many kindergarten kids who can even say the word conveyancer, so I doubt very much they're going to be, you know, striving to be one of me. Um, but, look, I've always had a passion for law, um, even in school, one of 
pretty much the only subject I actually did really well in was legal studies. So I knew I wanted to get a job in a law firm. So as soon as I finished school, I uh, applied to every single law firm in the city and got a job on like $14,000 a year as a, as a junior in a law firm and absolutely loved it. I did every area of law from litigation to mortgages to tax uh, employment law, and I ended up gravitating towards uh, the mortgages and the property side of it. Um, I then tried my hand at family law, which I thought I really loved, but um, having a child uh, really changed my perception of family law. Um, all of the, I suppose, transcripts and things like that we would do were just really mortifying to me because I had a young child and I couldn't imagine anything happening to him. So I really, um, the emotional side of the family law got the better of me. Um, so that made me then focus on the property side of family law. With any family or most family breakdowns, there is a transfer of property which needs to take place. So I got into that and realised, hey, you know what, there is still an emotional aspect to it because it's an emotional transaction, but it is really black and white. There is a process. It's very, very process driven so that if we want to deviate from the process, then we're moving into grey area, which would lead me to then, I suppose, curb clients' expectations. But it was really um, a lot of that over emotional and kind of the drama side of it was taken out of it, which I loved, um, but I still got that one-on-one communication with the client. So that led me to then um, move roles into a law firm, become a law clerk and get my get my conveyancing licence. And what led you to starting your own firm? Yeah, well, um, having children quite young, I um, tried to stay working in law firms, but I realised pretty quickly that the corporate world isn't very accommodating to mothers. Um, this was, you know, 10 years ago. So they weren't overly happy with, you know, letting you leave early to go and watch school concerts and pick up from daycare and things like that. So um, I did try my best to stay in the corporate world because I thought that's where I belonged. Um, but it was soon after I realised I got a, a job in a small office in Port Melbourne. There was only, I think, three of us in the conveyancing team and realised that this was where I needed to be, that personal interaction. We went from a clinical corporate world where clients were street addresses and file numbers into this smaller office where people would pop in and meet with you and bring you flowers and bring you cupcakes and say thank you. And it was a real emotional side of it that I hadn't seen, a real kind of gratitude for the job that we just didn't see in a law firm. So I decided to turn my back on the corporate world, start my own business running it from a personal perspective, we are a boutique business, but we've got an open door policy. Our, our um, reception area is set up like a lounge room so the clients can come in and sit down and have a coffee with us. So it brings that personal aspect into it while I can still follow the processes and procedures and make sure that we're acting in our clients' best interests. So, Well, that sounds lovely and I guess a bit of a culture shock and, mm. and, and any efforts we were going to make to sort of try and perceive the corporate law industry as anything other than sort of soulless and terrifying vultures yeah. of people uh, we've uh, we've ruined that already <laughs> absolutely <laughs> let's get to the to the nuts and bolts um, now this is where maybe some people might drift off but personally I'm I guess a nerd so I'm interested what, what is the legal framework to define what real property is as opposed to other types of property and and how how what, what's the mechanism from transferring it from one entity to another? Sure. Um, the easiest way to describe it is real property is legitimately real house, um, a block of land. Um, off the plan is a little bit different because we're buying in a 
we're, we're buying an assumption of what the apartment will look like at the end, but it literally is something that you, bricks and mortar, you're buying something that you can see, feel and touch as opposed to intellectual property or um, anything else where you're kind of, you know, investing in something, investing in shares or something like that. So we are literally the blood, sweat and tears of the houses that are built or the land that it's going to be built on. And it's as simple as that that land or that land and improvements being a, a legal document that specifies what it entails and that can be, I guess, sold or given to to whoever? Yeah, look, the contracts of sale these days, um, the Land Institute of Victoria has actually just updated all of our contracts of sale um, because the special conditions that were in contracts were just getting absolutely ridiculous. Um, you get a contract that could potentially be a 30-pager turned into an 80-pager full of pretty much lawyers just justifying what they needed to do for a living um, with all of these conditions that really weren't they weren't worth the paper they were, they were written on. So the Land Institute of Victoria have come out and they've done a massive overhaul of all of the general conditions in our contracts. So they are becoming a little bit more standard. However, every contract and every property is different in its own right. So it's really important that every contract is reviewed prior to signing on the dotted line um, because once you sign on that dotted line and you can't change it. So um, my biggest piece of my education with clients is making sure that we get that contract before you sign it. Um, I guess going back to the question you asked before about the process and the mechanics of the back end side of it, conveyancing is electronic now. So we use a platform called PEXA for all of our transactions, which has its ups and has its downs. Um, It is owned by the major banks. So um, unfortunately, if a bank has some back end issues and can't transact, then the world kind of stops. But on the face value, it's a brilliant product. It means that everything can be done a lot more, a lot quicker. Um, but also, the attention to detail is absolutely on point. You know, there's no errors, there's no mistakes, there's no incorrect anything because you've got a platform where all parties can see everything in in the workspace. So everyone's privy to everyone else's documents. There's no last minute surprises at settlement because a name's been spelt wrong or a title's been spelt or, you know, the title details are wrong. So um, it really does eliminate any kind of settlement hiccups, um, but it means that the process, when once it's done, is immediately uploaded. The transfer is happened immediately um, and the funds are transferred wide across from both, account, um, both accounts and obviously the bank instantly. So it really is wow. um, a fantastic way of doing the processing in the back end. The only thing now is that once upon a time you did used to be able to do your own conveyancing. Now you can't. Is that potentially for the best? I mean, I'm sure there are some, uh, let's say, engineers who do read every line and they go and they understand it and they'll spend quite some time making sure they're mm-hmm. knowing it inside out and back to front. But is that a good thing, do you well, think? Are people more likely to get themselves into trouble? I think it's a brilliant thing. Um, it, it, is, it is what could possibly be the last, largest investment you are going to make in your lifetime. You need to do it right and you need to do it once. You've only got one chance at it. So if you miss one single tiny little box, it could change everything. You might accidentally put in the wrong address and make the property an investment property and all of a sudden you're getting charged at full stamp duty and you're getting charged tax purposes, things like that. You've just, you've got to let the professionals do it. It's not as straightforward as just changing names. 
Speaking of the professionals, you, you said something my, my ears sort of pricked up. You said it's it's important that you get to look at the contract before it's signed. Mm-hmm. Is that not happening? That seems mad. Uh, honestly, it's scary how often it doesn't happen. As I said, um, every client I speak to, the first thing I say is before you sign anything, come to me. But I'll, other people don't know it. Um, people don't know what they don't know. And if you haven't bought a house before, you assume that you're just signing on the dotted line. Um, I think it would be more prudent if agents could possibly educate a little bit more about that, but that is not their job either. So there are people out there that do just sign the contract and kind of hope for the best. That's that's a bit of a terrifying thing. And I'm wondering, you know, here I am looking for clickbait or something. Who can we point the fingers at? Is it is it agents trying to push sales through and wanting people to, to sign quickly? Is there is there pressure coming from anybody or is it just a general lack of information? Uh, excuse me. I honestly think it's a lack of information. Look, I had a client and um, this was a very unfortunate situation for my client because I had reviewed a few contracts for him and we do our contract reviews for free so that we don't have clients worrying and going, oh, do I have enough money to pay for another review? We want people to come to us with 10 contracts that potentially aren't right rather than signing one that they think is right without getting a review. But we did have a client who I'd reviewed a couple of contracts for him and a couple of weeks later, I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks and then he went off to a couple of open for inspections and a couple of auctions, ended up buying two properties on the same day. Granted, they were apartments and they were smaller apartments, but they were so small that his bank couldn't lend to them and because he'd signed at auction, He didn't get any cooling off period. He didn't get any subject to finance. So he'd locked himself into two contracts without reviews and then the bank decided they couldn't lend to it. So that was a really, really sad situation but a really good example of why it's important just because you've had three or four reviews before does not mean that the one you're going to sign is okay. What actually happened in that instance? Obviously, they would they would be forced to to go through with those contracts, well, or would yeah. they basically just suffer the penalty of having to withdraw. No, well, look, you actually you can't withdraw. Um, so what happened was the banks obviously couldn't lend. He tried a couple of different options, and at the end of the day, the vendors um, rescinded both of the contracts and kept his deposit money. Right. Ouch! Yeah. That's a very, uh, very expensive lesson. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Let's let's focus on that um, exchange of of the contract. I guess that's the point where it becomes real. We're not talking about these, you know, five hundred dollar little real estate deposits that I think in New South Wales, at least legally, you're not allowed to call holding mm-hmm. deposits. They're sort of just a seems to me like a little bit of an elaborate dance. It's you know like the birds of paradise fluffing their feathers and and dancing around in a circle. But an exchange is when it gets really serious, right? You're you're signing a contract with the intention to to proceed with the purchase. Mm-hmm. What what actually happens here, and what what goes on with respects to the deposits and cooling offs? What what are the different variations and things you can see? Yeah, well, look, of course, I am speaking from Victoria, so the rules do slightly change per state. So in Victoria, uh, our kind of standard process is that the clients would make an offer on a property, and that offer isn't just the purchase price and the settlement date. It includes 
subject to finance, subject to building and pest inspection, um, if some of those special conditions that I alluded to earlier were not favourable to the purchaser, we can request to delete them. Um, and also if there are any additional conditions that our purchasers need in there, we can request to have the additional uh, conditions put in. And once those kind of nitty-gritty terms and conditions have been approved, the client, the purchaser, will then fill in a contract of sale and offer it as their offer to the vendor. Um, they will also pay a small monetary deposit or the full 10% deposit, depending on what the agent wants. Um, and upon acceptance of that offer and countersigning by the vendor, that is our exchange. Um, once it's exchanged, we have two different scenarios. One is um, the private sale, which is the, the scenario I'm explaining now. And in a private sale, you are given the opportunity to have a three-day cooling off period. So a three-day cooling off period is literally three days to change your mind. Um, there may be a small monetary penalty on doing that. And um, that is at the discretion of the vendor as to, I mean, yeah, at the vendor as to whether or not they want to impose that penalty. Um, it's either $100 or 0.2% of the purchase price. Um, but ultimately, if they do change their mind or something happens in, within those three days, they can just get out. Now, the other scenario is our auction process. Um, auctions are totally opposite to a private sale. So if you go to an auction and you put your hand up and bid and you are the successful bidder at the fall of the hammer, you're purchasing that property unconditionally, no if, buts, whys, or maybes, no second thoughts. The price is the price. You pay your 10% deposit and you move straight on through to settlement. So you need to be really um, confident when you're going to auction, not only that the contract has been reviewed, but that you've got your finance in order You've got your deposit money ready to go, um, and this property is is the perfect property for you. It's interesting that you talk about the offer being not just the price, but the the terms of the contract or the special conditions. Mm -hmm. It's something I guess that typically investors wouldn't consider. Like they would say, oh, you know, I offered six hundred yeah. or one point one or whatever. But you're thinking, well, the price is just one part of it, but the conditions and how the actual settlement takes place and what the conditions are on that are, make up the whole yeah. thing. How, how, how do you, how, how does that work with an auction? It sort of sounds like the ability to sort of influence the conditions is, is diminished. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, auctions are um, a beast of their own pretty much. Uh, we've just had a weekend where we've had 80% clearance rates at auction over the weekend, which is huge for Melbourne. So um, they are probably the favourite transaction, but you do have a lot less wriggle room. Uh, the agent will notify people or potential bidders of what the terms or favourable terms of the vendor are. But with an auction, the price is, is the price and then the settlement date is the only negotiable, which needs to be negotiated between the parties. Um, otherwise, the rest of it is you've got no choice. You sign that contract, whatever terms are in that contract are in that contract. Of course, there are always ways to negotiate. Um, everything in this world is negotiable. Um, but on face value, you need to be confident going to auction and putting your hand up. With the, the cooling off period that we mentioned before, you, you, you 
basically said that it's for people to to change their mind. But do, do things normally happen during that cooling off period as well, like pest and building, or, or is that sort of a condition of the contract that there's a, a suitable pest and building report? Yeah, look, again, it does depend on what the agent accepts. So if, for instance, we did put our offer forward and it included, say, a seven-day building and pest inspection, um, but the vendor came back saying, look, I'll accept everything else, but I'm not going to make it subject to building and pest, then the vendor, the purchaser, sorry, would in good fat, good mind, go and get that building and pest inspection done within the cooling off period. Right, okay. And, deal and breaker. We've got ways to get around it, but we've got to make sure that we're on top of it. Yeah. And is it true that you're able to, to waive this cooling off period as, I guess, a, a gesture to say, look, we're serious and we're, we're putting this offer with a waived cooling off period and and if so what why would why would you do that is is that a powerful sort of offer to a vendor oh look um we don't really see that very much here uh the biggest i suppose um incentive for a vendor is having you pay the 10 percent deposit when you sign that contract so instead of saying oh i'll pay the deposit when you countersign the contract and you accept my offer um they put their offer in on a contract of sale and pay the deposit immediately. That is more of a goodwill gesture just to show that someone's 100% interested and is ready to commit to the purchase. So we've we've exchanged on on the property and everything satisfied. The cooling off period has expired. Mm-hmm. We get to settlement. What actually takes place that affects this change of ownership from one property to the yeah. next? One entity, I should say. Yeah. There's a few things that happen in the meantime, and PEXA is a great tool. PEXA speaks straight to the titles office, um, and then we've also got another platform, which is the state revenue office. So there's um, duties forms that need to be filled out so that our stamp duty calculation can be done prior to settlement, which is the way we do it here in Victoria. Um, we also do what's called a statement of adjustments, and that statement of adjustments adjusts all of the rates, so council, water, potentially land tax and potentially owner's corporation and potentially rental, depending on the circumstances of the contract, um, between the parties. And the reason we do it prior to is we don't want our clients or the vendor after settlement to have to deal with, oh, we got this invoice, but I lived here for three days and the vendor lived here for the rest. So he owes me $35.65. So I need to go and get that off him. We do it prior to so that any adjustments for the time from the day of settlement to the end of the rating period that the vendor has already paid in full are paid to him at settlement so there's no backwards and forwards. So that when we do actually settle, and when I say settle in our workspace, it is pretty much just us doing everything we need to, the bank having the money if the bank is providing money, if the purchase is providing contribution funds as a top-up, we need to have those money available. It's pretty much putting all of our ducks in a row and bringing our transaction as far forward as we possibly can. Settlement is the actual physical time at which the documents at the titles office are flipped from one name to the other. Um, the funds or stamp duty is paid to the state revenue office. Any lodgement fees or titles office fees are paid. The vendor pays out their mortgage. The vendor pays out any council water owners corporation fees. The balance goes into their account. So all of that happens within about a 20-minute, half-an-hour window. Right. And so is it is it just a situation that the banks will sort of 
pull the the resources into i guess some sort of temporary trust and then once everyone's satisfied they're clicking a button to say yes the land titles information has changed and now it's correct and we can affect the transfer how how does it happen i'm I'm picturing sort of two gangsters meeting and one's you know got the suitcase full of cash and kicks it over and then they throw the bag of whatever no it's a lot less boring than that um we are literally all in a workspace and um yeah, PEX is very good with their um, – <clears throat> they've got a trust account you can use. We've got a trust account, so we use our own. Um, but we just all authorise the funds to be put into um, a conjoined PEXA account. Um, and then in that PEXA account, we've also got – so the source funds is where the money's coming from. So it might be the bank and it might be any purchaser funds that are going in. And then the destinations is where that money's going to. So are we paying legal fees, paying council, owners' corporation, paying at the bank – giving money to the vendor, then we've got our stamp duty in our titles office. And those two, that source funds and those destination funds need to match. We've also got an allocated settlement time. So as long as all of those funds matched and all of our documents have been signed by the allocated time, on that time frame, we, we call it ready, ready. And the, the process just automatically locks it in to settlement and then it just processes on and on, on its own. It sounds really simple, but I'm sure there are things that happen that, that, that go wrong. And I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of pleasure delay people on that. And to be honest, I'm the one probably more more jumping out of their skin. But I wanna ask you about the, the title, um, the land title sort of document that says who owns the the property. I'm interested in that. Is is that still a physical thing or did it used to be a physical sort of printed out deed in in fancy old English that people would swap over the yes? definitely did. Um, they were beautiful, beautiful documents and it's very sad that we don't get to see them anymore. They have um, changed over time. They did go from these beautiful, as you said, hand ink forms that you could look at one of these giant titles and you can see every mortgage, every discharge of mortgage, and you could see the, 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 the lifeline of that property on this one big piece of paper, which was beautiful. Um, then the titles office changed them to these paper-based um, blue pieces of paper with these little um, holographic windows at the bottom, which, again, were still paper. So they would be posted out and they'd be sent. You'd keep them in your, you know, your lawyer or conveyances archive or, you know, in a shoebox in the cupboard or wherever some people keep them. Um, but now with the electronic system, all titles are now electronic. So we don't, very rarely, there is a few random instances where we might need a paper title. Um, but now moving forwards, everything's electronic. So there's, we can do a title search, which just spits out on a black and white piece of paper. So it's not very fancy at all. But now wow. we're in, you know, moving into 2020 and we are all technology based sad isn't it i mean I, I still download books on the ipad but i you know i like to maintain a line it's just good to look at isn't it maybe i'm just showing no you. no i agree 100 when we get these old titles that come through our office which are very rare we say to our clients we have to write to straight on it but please frame it keep it these things are they're rare um keep it it's a gorgeous little memento of you know a property that was so we try our hardest but most people don't really want to keep it so <laughs> A lot of people collect stamps. I think these would be far more interesting. We might start a trend from this podcast. See if I can source some beauty. Yeah. And if anyone wants to destroy one, just send it to me and I'll I'll get it framed and put it on my wall. <laughs> Lovely. And if you get two, then send me one. Totally. Now, I, I want to know about uh, something that people say all the time. It's it's one of those sort of, uh, I guess, those sort of 
templated jokes that uh, you know oh, congratulations on the new house oh well you don't congratulate me congratulate cba because they're the ones that own it whatever that's not technically the case right that when when we talk about purchasing property with a mortgage mm-hmm. it's it's not that the, the bank takes ownership of it it's just some sort of caveat yeah. or charge yeah. can you explain what happens yeah, sure. it's called an encumbrance on title so the actual registered proprietor is always the individual but there are encumbrances on title one the first encumbrance is usually a mortgage then you might have a caveat um, you might have a charge, as you mentioned, um, but it is something that is removable. So when you do pay out that bank loan, then we can remove that mortgage off the title and it will always remain in your name. The only reason why I think the people uh, assume the bank owns it is because the banks, if they are a mortgagee on title, they will control that title for the time being. So with the paper titles, it wouldn't be sent back to the individual to take control of. It would stay with the bank until the mortgage had been paid out and then it would go to the clients. So same thing now with the electronic, as we call it now is receiving electronic control because you can't have a paper document. You can just control that title. So now if you have a mortgage, the bank controls the title, but ultimately you are the owner. You can pay that mortgage out at any point in time. Um, So... I, I understand where the mentality is coming from, but um, no, the banks, unless you default in your mortgage and the bank takes possession under um, as a mortgagee in possession, then um, no, you are the registered and legal owner at all times. I guess that's where it feels more like they own it. Um, and, I, gee, I'd love to kick a bank off a title. I've never had the pleasure as yet, no, no. but you've got to have got to be lucky. That's right. <laughs> So so we've covered off the exchange, the cooling off, the settlement. I guess they're the sort of the, the big key milestones. But what else are you managing as a conveyancer as part of the process and, and who are the other stakeholders that you deal with throughout the whole um, process of, of purchasing or selling? A yeah, property? sure. So I think the best way to describe what we do is we are, we, if, for instance, if we were acting for a purchaser, we are the purchaser's representative. So we are the middleman. If they need something, they come to us. We then facilitate, do we need to go to the bank? Because we deal directly with the bank. Do we need to go to the agent? We deal directly with the agent. Or do we need to go to the vendor's solicitor? So once you've got a representative, the communication with the vendor, what we call the other side, is strictly done between the legal professionals. Um, The vendor and the purchaser can't talk to each other direct. We do everything. So if the client comes to us and says, oh, I need to organise my final inspection, we go, yep, no worries, let's get in contact with the agent and organise that. And they come to us and say, all right, we need to get our insurance sorted. We say, all right, no worries, let me introduce you to someone to get your insurance done. So we are really like the facilitators, the middleman, the handholders that take the clients through the journey. And then also, if it's something that we not, may not necessarily do, we point them in the right direction or give them the right introductions to get those things done. So we've got building inspectors, mortgage brokers, um, property managers, other real estate agents, buyers advocates, if that's what they might need. Uh, we've got a massive referral network in you know trades, anything you could possibly think of, um, because we have people that come to us and ask us for these recommendations. So um, we really do act as that kind of facilitator or middleman in the whole transaction. Awesome, yeah. So you're the you're the conductor of the orchestra, I guess. Despite a lot of people not even knowing what you do or that you exist, perhaps. 
what about um, now? We're we're getting close to the to the horror story section, so just just re-engaging anyone that's yeah. that's that's yeah. not enough. Although I'm I'm very very engaged. <laughs> um, the contract itself. You, you mentioned that they sort of can be pretty smart yeah. and uh, and and tight documents. Um, but that's sort of changing a little bit. But what what can go wrong with the contract itself? Why is it important that you you read the contract prior to your client signing them? What are some of the key things that, that cause yeah. people grief? So as, as I did say at the start, the contract can include special conditions. So every contract of sale has to have general conditions and these are the conditions that are prescribed by Land Institute of Victoria. So we all deem these to be fair and reasonable between both parties, but our special conditions are prepared by the vendor solicitor and generally are deemed to be more favourable to the vendor. So I've seen a contract before that there has been a special condition that says the vendor may terminate this contract at any time during the contract term by giving two business days written notice to the purchaser. Oh, lovely. Just pull the ripcord and yeah, off you go. Yeah, correct. So to me, I say, no, we either delete it. If they won't delete it, we don't buy it because that is not fair. That is not fair. When we've got purchasers who are potentially organising removalists and cancelling leases, you can't just be left with a dangling carrot in front of you and going, oh, maybe, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. there's, oh, there's some weird and wonderful ones in there. We've had one that came across my desk a couple of weeks ago, which was quite hilarious that... Um, the vendor actually owned, it was in a unit, block of units, and the vendor owned another unit in there, which he actually lived in. And there was restrictions in there saying that the vendor may utilise um, the storage cage for a period of up to, but not including 12 months. Um, this may be extended at any point of time. So our clients are buying a unit, a car park and a storage cage, but can't use a storage cage. Um, and then they also said that the vendor may elect to use the car park at any point in time that they wish for another period of 12 months. So Things like that, we go, oh, you know what, when you're paying that much money for it, unless you're going to lease those things out and give us some money for it, not interested, they're not fair and reasonable. Um, But, look, there can also be other ones in there in terms of um, physical items at the property that the vendor may be taking with them. So there's an age-old story of a, um, it's a very, very old, fair, you know, tale of time where a vendor left a property and took a giant lemon tree out of the front yard. And well, you wouldn't have seen it. In, in full fruit, I assume, as well, just to make it even juicier. Oh, that's a terrible pun by accident. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> leaving a big giant hole in the front garden. Um, but on further review of the contract of sale, the vendor actually wrote in there that he was going to be taking the lemon tree, so he had every right to take the lemon tree. Uh, the purchaser didn't do their due diligence, so if they had of maybe that would have come up. But it can be other things like um, they're going to take the chandelier out of the dining room or they're going to leave behind freestanding wardrobes or I actually saw one the other day where it said they were going to take the dishwasher. So you've really got to look at these contracts on their own merits and really closely because there can be some little tricky, weird and wonderful things that pop up from time to time. And as far as home appliances go, it's very, very easy to form an emotional attachment with a dishwasher. So I think that's fair enough. Um, 
<laughs> All right, for, for for people that have been chewing their nails, wanting to hear the horror stories, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that if, if these are clients of yours or, or stories of yours, then there's there's actual real human stories. So I feel it like a little bit of one of those sort of adventure <laughs> tourists of Afghanistan or something. We if we can ignore any of the of the collateral damage and talk about the specifics of it, what what have you yeah, got? Yeah, look, us? absolutely. I mean, my client before that I told you before that was an absolute nightmare of a transaction for him which was horrible um one of the things that i alluded to earlier about pexa and the banks owning pexa we had a i think it was a thursday afternoon at like four o'clock both westpac and cba systems in the background broke down and they couldn't actually accept any payments at all so none of our settlements could go through they went through the settling process but when it got to the end part where it's asking about dispersing funds any bank accounts that were linked to a Westpac account or a CBA account couldn't settle because they couldn't accept funds. Um, the, the, the overarching ir- ironic part of this is the fact that PEXA actually banks with Westpac. So no one in PEXA could settle um, and that went Thursday, Thursday night and then Friday morning. We ended up setting, settling them th- Friday afternoon. But luckily, because if we don't settle on a Friday, you don't do it again until Monday. But those kinds of things is the banks are in control and the banks are the ones that own these platforms and having, you know, everything has uh, teething problems, I would call them. Um, but that was a really big doozy. I mean, we had we had about 12 to 18 clients that were on the Thursday and the Friday. Um, luckily enough for us, we had some lovely vendors who allowed us, our clients, to start moving their things in and um, get early access to the properties. So there wasn't any disruptions, which was great, but that's not always the case. I mean, we've always got circumstances where uh, a vendor might be selling a property and buying a property at the same time which need to settle on the same day at the same time if that doesn't happen then they've got removal of trucks in limbo which can be a bit of a nightmare um i did have another pretty traumatic experience for a client of mine who was purchasing a property and unfortunately the vendor was selling um out of uh pressure i suppose um rather than a will to sell uh so when we did finally get to settlement they refused to move out and the rule is that you need to provide vacant possession at settlement so we um we, we identified this pretty early because under the contract of sale our purchasers are entitled to do a final inspection seven days prior to settlement And at our seven-day inspection, uh, it was very evident the house was still absolutely full to the brim um, and this poor vendor was a little bit of a hoarder, so there was a lot of stuff there. So we were able to raise the alarm quite early, but the vendor, it took her an extra two weeks after settlement to move all of her belongings out. She did not want to leave. She did not want to transfer that property, Um, but effectively she had to. She signed the contract, but it meant that our clients were delayed. They couldn't move in for two weeks because... The vendor still had all of their things in there, but um, we were able to negotiate some penalty um, costs from the vendor and they covered the um, storage of their units in a storage cage and some temporary accommodation for them, which was great, but, you know, still a nightmare, especially for our first-home buyers. If you're buying your first home, it's kind of the last thing you want to have to deal with in those circumstances. So that was a pretty traumatic experience for my poor guys. You 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 picture sort of you know swanning in perhaps the 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 man cradling the woman you know through the door with a champagne yeah. bottle open not sort of a, a hoarder with her yes, heels dug in absolutely absolutely it was not what they were expecting at all um, it was a very kind of 
trying situation and you know as I said we got there in the end but um, I guess the biggest oh, there was another one we had actually which was it ended up being resolved but um, during one of the storms over our winter time a, a client of mine was purchasing a property and this property actually the roof caved in and um, the damage to the property was ginormous there was about a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage to the property including the hardwood floors that needed to be ripped up and replaced so um in those instances the vendor needs to provide the property to the purchaser in the condition that it's in on the day that you sign the contract so Evidently, wow. the property was not in the same condition. So our advice to the client was we need to sit tight and let them get these works done. Um, it is going to mean that we're going to have to delay settlement. It was a long settlement anyway and this kind of happened in the middle, so we still had time. Um, but effectively there was a question mark whether the insurance company was going to was going to cover it or not. Um, and thankfully they ended up covering it. But um, if we had a short settlement or if the insurance company wasn't going to cover the, cover the costs of bringing that property back to scratch, we would have had a real nightmare on our hands. But as it was, the client delayed with settlement for an extra month. Um, but on the flip side, he got brand new hardwood floors and a brand new roof. So it turned out to be okay, but those kinds of things, they're unforeseen things that you just can't possibly anticipate. People ask me questions all the time about, oh, what should I be worried about? And I said, look, if I had a crystal ball, my life would be so much easier. But there are weird and wonderful mm. things that pop up every single day that you just, you can't possibly anticipate. Yeah. I was hoping we wouldn't um, end on a on a negative horror story and you're bringing us back into the light with yes. something that sort of saved yeah. the client. Uh, are there some great examples where you've, I guess you can you can go home at the end of the day and, and, and have a yeah. glass of wine and say, look, because I've flexed my conveyancing muscle, I've, 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 I've been a superwoman and I've, I've rescued the client from, a, from yeah. the perils of the situation. <laughs> look, a lot of these kinds of uh, pats on the back moments happen at review stage, which is why it's really important. Um, one of the biggest things we're seeing at the moment is illegal building works. Um, I have clients all of the time um, having a look at properties and once we get into the contracts and we have a bit of a deeper look, it turns out that maybe the vendors built a deck or a pergola or there's a granny flat at the back that legally shouldn't be there. Um, rule of thumb is that when you buy a property, if there are any illegal structures or any non-compliance with council building permits or notices, the, you are inheriting all of those problems and all of those issues. So um, we had one not long ago where there was a an extension put on the back of a house which included a bathroom, um, an on, like an ensuite kind of powder room thing and another bedroom on the back of it. And because we were able to identify that that part of the building was a little bit newer than the rest of the building, not only did it turn out that the works had been done totally illegally, turns out that they'd built that bedroom over a water easement as well. So Ooh. you can't you can't do either of those things. But what would have happened is if we had have bought this or if they had not have picked it up, we got a building inspector to go in and kind of have a deeper look at it. But um, if we hadn't have picked these things up, I guarantee in the next couple of years council would have come knocking and they would have come around and said show me your permits also you've built over an easement not only is that a fine you're going to have to rip it down because we need access to this easement 24 7 um, these easements on this property actually went right through the middle of the property so it was a really oddly placed 
property on the block. Um, but, yeah, we were able to identify that before they signed it and say, don't do it, walk away, do not sign that contract, get away. So we um, definitely saved them from buying a property that might have ended up costing them a hell of a lot more money in time to come. Yeah, a demolition order really takes the uh, shine off your scrambled Ooh, eggs and coffee in the morning. <laughs> Especially when you go, what do you mean? I just bought this. I haven't done anything. Um, look, there's policies yeah. and procedures out there that can protect you against these things, but it only protects you against unknown things. And I don't know about you, but I would not take on a risk or an unknown risk without doing my due diligence and just go, oh, but it might be okay. Because when you're spending upwards of $500,000 on something, not many people pocket for a lousy, you know, $30,000 building notice. So it's important that we check these things early um, and make sure that we are putting our clients into uh, positive property experiences, not, uh, not negative ones. Exactly. And I'm on the same page as you, although I think typically people spend more time researching whether they should be an iPhone or a Samsung person than they do purchasing a, a property. But here we are educating people. So I know. You know, just there's some crazy away. stats out there about people spending more time looking for holidays than they do looking for like a decent mortgage broker or a decent conveyancer. So I know I'd rather be on a holiday, but <laughs> it's still important to have yeah. those really key property professionals in your corner because they can make or break an experience. Speaking of property uh, professionals and, and I guess focusing on yourself, here, here's something that I, I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about. There's a, there seems to be a little bit of a turf war between solicitors and conveyances when it comes to the conveyancing side. So solicitors... Uh, presumably can do all yeah. sorts of things and setting up trusts and representing people in in legal matters outside of property but they often sort of say that working with a conveyancer is not a good idea because if it goes wrong you need a solicitor anyway or a conveyancer not, might not be able to pick up something that yeah. escalates is there any sort of is there any fire uh, to that look, smoke? I mean our argument from our side of it um in, our, in my actual personal experiences, the hardest um, representatives to deal with on the other side are potentially those lawyers or solicitors who maybe don't um, actively practice in property law but go, oh, you know what, I'm a tax lawyer, I'm legally allowed to do conveyancing, I'll just give it a crack and I'll do it for Joe and Martha down the road. Um, we end up doing half of the transaction for them because they haven't done it for so long. They don't know which forms they need. They don't know which way to do things. I had a solicitor one time. He didn't even know he needed to book in settlement with his bank. He thought I was going to do it for him. But, mate, I get that you're a lawyer and I get you're a solicitor and you can puff your chest as much as you want, but this is your client. I, I don't have privy information to speak to your client's bank. I've only got privy information to speak to my client's bank. So the, I suppose the flip side of the argument is that we are licensed. We have studied in only the area of property law. So we know this area like the back of our hands. Um, also, a lot of, depending on which commands you go to and how much experience they've got, I mean, I've come from a major law firm where negotiating is my second nature. So we avoid having to go through legal battles, whereas if you're with a lawyer, they've got those facilities on hand. So they're more likely to say, oh, you know what, this is looking like it's going to go that way. So let's just take it that way to get it over and done with. Whereas we'll do everything in our power to avoid that legal cost and legal process because half the time once you're in it, it's not a quick fix. It's a long, drawn-out and expensive, I suppose, 
action that needs to be taken. But as a backing, I'm aligned with three lawyers. I've got a panel of lawyers that I work with. So if something did pop up that I had, oh, I wonder if this is going to go that way, um, they give me off-the-cuff advice as to, um, you know, some potential steps taken into place. And then I also brief them on what's going on so that if it does get to a legal dispute, um, I can quite easily flick this contract or flick this file onto my lawyer. My clients don't need to sit down and start from the scratch and go through everything all over again. They're already briefed on it. So the clients can go in, engage the lawyer, get it done, get the letter out and get it, you know, get it all sorted out. Um, so, look, as far as I'm concerned, we are the professionals, unless you're dealing with a property lawyer direct. Mind you, you're probably dealing with their PA or junior, not necessarily them. Um, I wouldn't recommend using a solicitor who is not active in property um, or conveyancing um, because the conveyances are, this is all we know. This is our this is our expertise and we are the, we are the specialists in that area. Now, I guess solicitors would say, you know, you pay a premium for us, but of course we've got that extra muscle with you need it, but you've already got it on your panel anyway and you can spot something that's got the potential to escalate well before it happens. There's no, there's no um, lawyers out there that will do free contract reviews to avoid the bad stuff. We do these reviews for free so that our clients don't get to a point of moving into a legal dispute. We do it backwards. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> now... You you mentioned that uh, obviously you're you're based in in Melbourne, Victoria. Uh, are you are you just transacting in Victoria, or you've got access? Yeah, to Yeah, no, states definitely. As well? So we've got um, New South Wales and Queensland at the moment, which is good. So good. we're spread right up the coast. That's a big chunk of yeah. all the property and look, in Australia. That we've That's got on our panel are also able to transact in all other states. So we've got recommendations everywhere. Awesome. Now, Kiani, if people want to get in touch with you and have a chat or perhaps a, a contract review on a prospective purchase, how do they do uh, that? Look, we are across all social media platforms. Um, also, my email, um, Kiani, K-I-A-N-I at klmconveyancing.com.au. Conveyancing is a tricky one to spell, so you may want to Google that one. <laughs> um, but we do have our office line, which is available at all times, 03-944-8282. Awesome. Now, if there's one piece of advice that you could impart to property investors transacting mm -hmm. on real property, what would that be? It would definitely be don't sign blind. That's nice and snappy. That'll make a good quote <laughs> There you card. go. Don't sign blind. Make sure you get that contract reviewed. Make sure you know what it is that you are putting your signature to and make sure that you've thought about what's in your best interest um, and make sure that you're not over committing yourself either. We see clients all of the time say, no worries, let's sell in 30 days. And they go, oh, actually, my money's in a term deposit. It's going to take 45 days to get that money released. So, And then they don't meet the deadlines. So think it all out. This is where the conveyancery representative is really important. Tell them your story before you go and sign anything because we can give you options and things that you haven't even thought about um, to make sure that that offer not only is accepted by the vendor but is agreeable to you and you don't default on any of your contract terms. Awesome. I think all the best advice is, is simple and you mentioned that you're doing these reviews for free. So there's no excuse uh, not to not to do that. Kiani, thank you very much for joining me. It's been My a My pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.